Jaren Cacophony tells you you're back with The Power of Three, the Doctor Who podcast that's bringing you some ideas for Christmas as we have a look at some of the new books that are available in the run-up to the big day on the 25th of December. I'm Kenny Smith and I'm here with my friend, my compadre, my partner in crime, my partner in time and generally all-round sound lovely fella. It's the one and only Dr John Bowen. Hi, hi Kenny. Um, again, a very fulsome introduction, compadre, companion, NHS, but yeah, yes. we, we're doing our bit. We're doing our bit, aren't we? We are. Doing our best. We do. But in different ways, I do my job to communicate all the good work that goes on internally and externally at Healthcare Improvement Scotland. And do you know, there's been a, we've done an awful lot of work recently on um, anti sort of nicotine and smoking and vaping stuff and our works appeared and something that I wrote is actually quoted in a new Scottish government paper so I'm really quite pleased about that so yay I'm doing my little bit and what your work is fantastic as well Well, I do my best being there for the staff when they need it most so yeah well done you you do but you do a more important part than me so you you keep the real workers going this is a wonderful mutual appreciation society, but we're really here to talk about our love of Doctor Who and our love of literature. That's very true. And I was very impressed. I was one of those who was just agog at, at, at the prodigious output of the, during the month of November for the 60th anniversary, this trawl through Doctor Who classics. And it was great to hear authors as well. And uh, it's a real thrill for me to have an opportunity to, to have a, a chance to talk about Doctor Who and literature now with you too. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed. It was a lot of fun, a lot of hard work. It was something we'd started planning in July, so it took a wee while to get there, but we got there in the end and we did it. So I'm glad you enjoyed. And who knows, we may have started, well, no, actually, I will be quite upfront. We have already started recording it some more for next year. So get ready for them around the time of Shooty's first season. But yes, we'll have a, a little look at an adventure from every doctor. Now, you mentioned the phrase classic literature. I've not often heard the new adventures and missing adventures in BBC books described as that, but I'm sure that the authors would happily take it. But we're going to talk about the Penguin Classics range, which has so far seen the Doctor taking trips to Camelot, to Oz and meeting Robin Hood. Have you picked up any of these books to date? Well, I'm just working my way through uh, Rebellion on Treasure Island. Um, I just about to start chapter five. So um, that's the only one I've picked up so far, but uh, I'm 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 enjoying myself so far to be uh, encountering these very familiar characters through the lens of the Eleventh Doctor and Clara. Yeah, interestingly, this is only the second BBC licensed book that's featured Clara. The other one was Shadow of the Shroud by Tommy Dombavand, which came out back in 2013. So it's been a whole decade without Clara in a novel. There you go. There's your useless trivial and I, fact. Yeah, I, I, I loved 
the pairing of the 11th Doctor and Clara, as indeed I enjoyed her pairing with the 12th Doctor too. Clara, sometimes the impossible girl, gets a bit of a, a rough time, but uh, I always warmed to Clara as a as a character. I also thought she was very funny, I thought, you know, and she was very well acted. So it's good to see her in, in action in, in this swashbuckler. Yep. As the, as the kids would say, John, haters gonna hate. Haters are definitely going to hate Kenny, that's true. But that doesn't mean they're right. More so. Exactly. Yeah. So exactly. I I mean, I've really enjoyed these books so far. We had a, we had a wee chat a few weeks ago with um, Paul Mars telling us about his classic works, uh, which have been great fun, having Josephine and the Argonauts and Dita's Robin Hood and Fourth Doctor Sarah and Harry book which was great fun. So, have you got your copy there? Do you have a physical copy? Or have you bought it as an e-book? Ah, well, luckily, I have uh, the cover blurb here because that's the book we're going to be chatting about today, which is quite convenient. Who was that? Asked Clara. And what are Pieces of Eight? I nearly said Pieces of Eighth. Goodness, you'd almost think I was plugging another podcast. The Doctor smiled. Robert Louis Stevenson, I did tell you. Summoned to 1700s Plymouth, the Doctor and Clara must investigate a mysterious thievery from the crown of King George. Their travels take them to a remote island, but as the secrets of the theft are unearthed, the Doctor discovers something far more sinister. The spectre of a terrible intellect is afoot. Thankfully, the Doctor and Clara won't be alone. A pirate called Long John Silver, runaway called Janie Hawkins, and a professor called Riversong along for the ride. I should be a professor, I'm just reading it off that Penguin website here. But yeah, I think it's a fantastic mix. I mean, when I was a wee boy, my dad always got me to read, you know, these classics, you know, the likes of Kidnapped and Treasure Island, you know, the famous five, The Coot Club, you know, Swallows and Amazons, all these sort of books. And, you know, obviously Enid Blight and stuff, Secret Seven, Famous Five. So I've always had a sort of a passion for these sort of classic pieces of literature aimed at children and Treasure Island's one that I just think of and smile now. You and I were chatting before we before we did this episode, in fact we chatted about it last week, and you mentioned that you'd read a more child-friendly version because that's the version that I read and I'm wondering if it was the same one. It most probably was, given that we're in Scotland and the libraries probably all had the same version. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. I don't know if it has something to do with the fact that although it's meant to be a kind of a, a child-friendly book in its, in its original incarnation, there's a lot of death in it. It's quite a violent story. Yeah. You know, the body count is pretty high. So I think that may have had something to do with it. And and um, but, but beyond that, I, as far as I can gather, it's fairly faithful to the to the original story. I mean, I've always had vague recollections too of, of like the the BBC classic adaptation and things like that, you know. So that's percolating somewhere in my in my head too. But I'm really I'm really enjoying this story, um, and, and and it's the way it's kind of using the characters from the from the original. But I don't want any spoilers, as I said, because I've already embarked on this <laughs> uh, on this process. But it's, it's interesting. There's a kind of a you know we're talking about the classics and 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 there's that bit of dialogue um, and between the the doctor and, and and Clara where he's talking about the TARDIS library and encouraging her to go and immerse herself in 
in some of the classics and he mentions Dracula and he mentions Great Expectations and things like that so there's a kind of a bit of a meta exercise there too I think you know no they've done you know they've done Dracula you know have they done a kind of a Great Expectations there's been flirtations with Dickens certainly but I guess you could say that um, Davros is a bit of a Miss Havisham character you know, but let's not go there. Again, that might be regarded as too controversial. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it is wonderful. Just something that Bally has absolutely captured Matt Stockter and Jenna as Clara. I think there's the dialogue sparkles, and you can tell this is somebody who's having fun while he's working. Oh, yeah, a great love for the characters, but also that kind of, and I guess it goes back to the the Hinchcliffe era which mined so many of the, the great classics is that Doctor Who is a gift. You can take the, the kernel of an idea that we find in these classic stories and you can you can mine it, you can take it anywhere you want, you know, so I'm sure this is where he's he's going with this too. Yeah, but we won't discuss too much about the plot because we want people to go out and buy it or ask for it for Christmas. The thing that I really like is Bally's writing style. There's a lot of energy to it, isn't it? It bounces around and it's yeah. it's vibrant. That's the word I'm looking for. It's as bouncy as the 11th Doctor himself. So yeah. you need to capture that on the page. Yeah. Well, why don't we have a quick chat with the author himself? Cool. My name is Bally Rye. I am a Leicestershire-based author of uh, children's and young adult fiction and have been for over 20 years. Um, I sort of specialise or started specialised primarily in writing about kind of modern British life and British teenagers and British schools, stuff that I would have wanted to read when I was younger. Um, but I, as my career has progressed, I've sort of widened into other areas, historical fiction, a bit of, you know, sci-fi fantasy and then um yeah doctor who fantastic well it's welcome to the, the power of three it's a delight to chat to you because my daughter was a reader of your books back in the day so i'm oh, yeah. i'm very pleased to to see you in person and have a chance to say thank you for great books particularly the whisper so that was uh, yeah. that's one um, of her favorites wow that was an early one yeah that was uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be on here actually delighted to be on talking about this book so yeah so tell us a wee bit about your writing career. How did it all kick off for you? It started with, I'm, I'm a massive fan of, or the, the two biggest inspirations on me were Sue Townsend um, and a lady called Essie Hinton, a book called The Outsiders. So when I was at school in the city of Leicester in the 70s and 80s, we talk about kind of diverse voices and all the rest of that. And I mean, it, they just didn't exist. So essentially, I was reading loads. I was reading four or five books a week at the age of like seven, eight, nine, ten. I was, you know, a voracious reader. But I very rarely read anything that was about me and my friends. And it wasn't really about or where we could recognize the world as a world that we belong to. And that was just something that I always wanted to do. So Sue Townsend's Adrian Mole was obviously set in Leicester, was a massive thing. She was my, you know, biggest role model and my hero. And I wanted to kind of emulate her to write about what I could see and the people I could see. Um, Leicester's incredibly, incredibly multicultural. It's the most multiracial city in the UK outside of London. It has been for a very long time. So I automatically ended up writing about friends, family, people I could see, and without thinking about the politics of it too much, because you don't when you're a kid, you're just writing. Um, but it became kind of very obvious as when I became, when I was first published in 2001, that the stuff I was doing was 
had that air to it because it was very different but yeah essentially i wanted to write about everyday lives everyday people you know um the next door neighbors is the the idea i always said sue townsend was a genius at writing about the next door neighbors and i kind of wanted to follow that but my writing is very different so a lot of the early stuff including the whisper that you mentioned is very gritty sort of urban you know british social realism but that's that's my bag that's what i started doing and that's kind of one of my interests so yeah it's uh it's a really weird thing and then i just showed some work to a lady that i knew whose mum was an agent you know she mentioned this years ago when we first met you don't think about it you don't you know my mum worked in a plastics factory so that's about as much as it meant to me i didn't know what it was uh what 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 that job it, um did was only later as an adult i'd been writing i moved back to leicester from london you know usual thing you know in my 20s struggling to decide what i wanted to do got this degree in politics i'm writing this book about a kid who's trying to escape a forced marriage and um i showed it to this she happened to come into the bar i was running to have some lunch and we kind of reconnected and i said oh i'm writing something she showed me so i did but 18 months later it turned into a concrete offer from uh, trans world which was fantastic although don't tell any of the authors i know uh, you know I, people like Mallory Blackman, for example, has got this amazing thing going on at the British Library at the moment. You can go and see all their rejection letters. Um, I didn't have a single one. I didn't have a single rejection. It was literally just, we want it. No, we want it. And yeah, so it's kind of serendipitous in a lot of ways. That's wonderful. Just the luck that's landed your way. Yeah. And, 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 well, and the effort, of course, the fact that you've got well, the yeah, talent. Just, so that's yeah, yeah, I think for a lot of authors, one of the things we we talk about, we don't maybe we don't talk about enough, is is the effort is there anyway. It's about so often very much about being pretty much in the right place at the right time. But I mean, at the exact right time with the right editor to look at your work and go, yeah, actually that's missing, or that's something that we want, or that's something that will work in a particular market. So yeah. Yeah, I suppose it just makes you a bit like Ian Rush or Kenny Dalglish being in the right place at the right time to whack him away. Yeah, those are, yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned those two. Those are two massive footballing heroes of mine as a kid. So, yeah. Yeah, I know you're a Liverpool fan. I've done my research. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. yeah, essentially, yeah. Yeah. You just know the space you've got to be in order to head the ball in when it's crossed. So, yeah, you know, nine times out of ten, if you stand there, you're going to get the, you're going to get the chance. So, yeah. put it away. Yeah. Also interesting, you mentioned Stu Townsend, absolutely formative reading for me, sort of reading the Adrian Wall books, and even now characters like Queenie and Bert Baxter are as alive in my head as they were back then, because these images of how I portrayed them and imagined them, they're still as they were the back then. It's wonderful to have that. Yeah, just, absolutely. It's so gritty and real. There are so many fans of that. I went out to an international school in Beijing, and the librarian was from Manchester, and she said, oh, you're a big... Adrian Moff and I went no I know she said well I've brought, uh, I said yes so she goes I've got something for you so she showed me a Chinese translation of Adrian Moff from 1982 83 83 so kind of within a year two years of it being published you know there were people in China reading it and you kind of look at that but it was the biggest selling book in the 1980s and I'm I got to I was very lucky she, I idolized her as a kid and then we became friends so i got to know her relatively well and when she passed away i handled all the media stuff for her family because they're very private so it was kind of this really weird thing where you grow up idolizing somebody and you actually genuinely you meet them and you know that old adage about be careful about meeting your heroes wasn't true with her she was amazing and we became really good friends so yeah i now own and operate a reggae sound system um with her youngest son danny 
Um, he's been a friend of mine for years. So there's a real connection between her as a human being and her family and myself. And and then obviously as a writer, yeah, she was she was astonishing. But I think she was even despite everything that she's had all the accolades from people. Um, generally, I think she was underrated. I don't think people realise what an amazing talent she really was. They're they're much more than comedies about a human being called Adrian Mole. They're way more than that. You know? So as commentaries on. Britain in the 80s and onwards, you know, particularly if you read Weapons of Mass uh, Distraction, her, her eye for the absurdities of British politics, unsurpassed. Jonathan Coe, maybe, you know, one or two others, but unsurpassed, she was astonishing. That's lovely yeah. to hear that, that uh, she became a friend. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really weird thing. You know, people look at me like I'm, they, they look a bit gone out when I say that. And you go, no, genuinely, that's what happened. It's just one of those, her granddaughters read my books at school and told their grandma that they preferred mine so we'd have a bit <laughs> of that do you know what I mean it was yeah it's uh yeah she's an astonishing human being when we talk about role models I genuinely feel that we live in a world of plastic and quite fake role models sometimes she stands head and shoulders above all of that you know she lost most of her sight by 1996 and I believe had more words published after she lost the sight than she'd published when she could see little things like that you just kind of go little things huge thing but you know as in little asides like that and you go well as far as a role model goes yeah she was a stuntry so, yeah. so let's talk Doctor Who were you a bit of a fan of the series before the commission came about when I was younger yeah so I mean I'm 52 so I had uh, my initial kind of Doctor Who phase was Tom Baker and I watched it religiously, like a lot of people, you know, every week. And then when uh, the regeneration into Peter Davison came, I had no idea because I hadn't seen a regeneration into Tom Baker. So as a young person, I didn't know as a child, I didn't know that would happen. So that was a massive shock. And then I love Peter Davison. I know he had that kind of posh, you know, probably lived in a village somewhere in Surrey, you know, but I love the cricket whites. And there's an episode, I can't remember which one it was, he plays he turns up and he plays cricket for the village team and they yeah. say there's this brilliant line where he says you know where you were you know spin bowler you know leg and he says nope fast <laughs> and he <laughs> up the entire team and then hits a century and a half with the bat um and i like playing cricket as a kid so that really resonated so up until i'm gonna i'm gonna be honest up until sylvester mccoy i was a huge fan and then i kind of and it wasn't I wasn't a massive fan of Sylvester McCoy as Doctor Who. I don't know if I'm going to get like loads of grief for that, but I just wasn't. And then, as I was older then as well, I was becoming a teenager and you go off and do other things. So no, the newer stuff I had caught up on, but I wasn't watching it religiously. As in, I'd catch up on it every now and then uh, with Dave Tennant, who I love as well. So yeah, it was the early stuff that really got me. So yeah, yeah, the same because you're three years older than I am. So yeah pretty much the reference points and it was Black Orchid was the one where he turned up and played cricket in the Orchid, village yeah. of Cranley I am going to actually I'm going to make a note of that I'm going to look that up <laughs> you'll get it on your iPlayer you yeah I was going to say they're all on aren't they all, yes. all the episodes on so yeah right, let yep. me just make a note of that I was thinking about that just the other day and I was going to go through all of the ones listed with Peter Davis yep. in the past five, so yeah there you go Mr Walking Talking Episode Guy to save you some time <laughs> there you go yeah that's yeah it's very helpful yeah. So when did the invite to write for this book come about? There's a, an editor at Penguin, Ruth, who has been asking me for a while. And when I say a while, I think the original, the earliest kind of invitation was like 10 years ago. 
And because I was always doing other stuff and there was always other things going on and my little girl is now 10 and had just been born and I was really, really busy and I kept turning it down. And then three years ago, I got a, or two, two and a half years ago, I got a, actually no, it's three years ago, I got an email saying there's, we, we, we've got this series and it's about kind of redeveloping or developing children's classics but with a Doctor Who character. There's a previous author that's done two or three and they are no longer doing it. So and we need a book and we kind of need it in four weeks time and this was christmas right so they're like oh we need it by the end of january and i'm like so yes or no and then i thought i kept turning them down i wasn't really doing anything we were coming out of the whole covid thing but leicester was kept in a lockdown longer than pretty much the rest of the country you know won't go into that whatever weird reason that was for so I thought I'm not doing anything. I, I'm, I'm going to write it, and it'll be a real challenge. So yeah, I think I probably turned it down three or four times in the past ten years, and then thought, right, I'll do it this time. Um, yeah. So sounds terrible, doesn't it? No, not at all. It's, it's <laughs> when you've got the time to kill, you might as well earn, earn yourself a few pennies. So yeah, so it must have been quite um, interesting getting a to sort of reinvent a classic. Did you get to choose Treasure Island or was that suggested? No, it was given. So it was basically, here's Treasure Island. This is what we want you to do. And it's Matt Smith, so 11th Doctor. And you can go with any of the sort of sidekick characters as you like. And of the newer stuff, the ones that I did watch semi-regularly were the Matt Smith ones because I loved Amy Pond as a character. And, you know, obviously you've got Jenna Coleman's character, which everybody, you know, this kind of impossible girl thing that goes on and on. And you just think, and that's a concept, I quite like that. Um, and I always like Matt Smith. I think there's a thing where there's loads of bits in the series where he's talking about he kind of his face. He's got quite this, he's got almost, it's not quite Rowan Atkinson, but he's got this rubbery kind of thing going on in his face. And I love the facial expressions he pulls. So I really kind of liked him, but I've got to be honest, the biggest thing for me it was uh, Strax and Jenny and the whole kind of, you know, what do they call them? The, the Paternoster uh, Gang. Paternoster Gang, yeah. That was that was huge for me because I had to go back and catch up. So I thought I'm going to start with the David Tennant. So the first, the, the, absolutely right at the beginning of the brand new wave. And I went through and I enjoyed those. They're good. And then you get to the Matt Smith ones with the Paternoster Gang and all the rest of that stuff that comes in and it, something resonated with me with that and I think it was because me and my little girl she was a little too young to even understand what was going on with the snowman you know the Christmas episode but I remember absolutely adoring that thinking this is absolutely perfect for Christmas like if I was going to create a, in my head a Christmas special for anything this is perfect you know and you know with Richard E. Grant as well you kind of look at that and you go you know because he's amazing so yeah it was given to me and I'm glad they gave me the 11th Doctor because I really resonated with that whole kind of way. Was it nearly three series in the end, wasn't it? Two and a half, was it? Yeah, so yep. really enjoyed those. So I love Strax. I love Jenny as well. I had this mental image of Jenny cleaning a spot of blood off of her boots. So she's got these muddy boots because she's walking around Victoria, London and there's a spot of blood. And that actually made it into the book, that scene. Uh, but I kind of imagined that in my head. Because I quite like how feisty she is as a character. She's really appealing. So, yeah. Now, had you read Treasure Island as a young fella? 
Yeah, twice, I think. I read it as a young person, kind of liked it. It wasn't one of my favourites. I was a massive fan of Frankenstein and Dracula, particularly. But yeah, I, I liked it and I kind of had been looking at the kind of golden era of the pirates and uh, of piracy and then beyond that, the sort of century after that, where this is the sort of another project that I've been working on. And it was about the idea that there were famous or infamous, it should be, pirates of African origin who were black skinned. Um, one in particular, I believe, was, was he called the Black Pearl or the Black Prince? There was one in particular. And a lot of enslaved people who had been freed often ended up as with, with pirates. They ended up on pirate cruises. And you kind of look at that. And then there was the whole idea that the pirates we were supposed to lead to believe as kids, that pirates were the bad ones. But the, the the navy ships from France, England, Spain were protecting this cargo that often was human cargo, and they were supposed to be the good guys. And you kind of look at that. So I, I, that was already in my head. So I had Treasure Island. I remember thinking about it, and then thinking, right, then there's all this other stuff, and I want to work the two things in together if I can, if it fits. Yeah. So I was like Treasure Island. I thought it was, you know, it's the Long John Silver thing, isn't it? You know, it's kind of as a kid you that resonates because those are characters you don't lose they don't like captain hook they don't ever go anywhere they're just there so tom baker was not to peter davidson so yeah yeah i think there's just something about that whole piratey feel there's just something about that genre is i think when you're when you're a young person it sort of sticks with because it is just it just seems such a a world way i mean even even more recently, you look at when South Park did an episode about Somalian pirates. You had the, the boys all thinking that they were going to encounter Long John Silver types and peg legs and parrots. And you know, it's a little bit more brutal yeah. than that, unfortunately. And yeah. I think it, there's almost like a romanticized version of it. I mean, obviously, we've, like, even in the cover, you've got the doctor with the hat on, sort of that romanticized pirate kind of look. And yeah. I, suppose that's, I suppose that's the thing. You sort of like, you want to evoke that, but do your own thing with it as well. That was the idea, yeah. The idea was to keep... Because I did say to them right at the beginning, how much of... Do I have to faithfully follow Treasure Island? And the editor was like, no. <laughs> you know, it, a starting point, a jumping off, would be great to keep some of the characters. But obviously, I played with the characters as well. So there is a long John Silver. There's a parrot. Just, you know... I mean, initially, I, 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 I envisaged the parrot as adult human-sized. Um, and that didn't happen. That was a friend of mine. Her son is a avid. I mean, he he's an encyclopedic knowledge of Doctor Who at the age of ten. You, you know, I, I remember speaking to him, and he's going, "You you can't have this because then you'd have to." And you know, um, and he came up with the idea of this giant parrot, right? So I, it didn't work its way in. But yeah, you know, Long John Silver, and then I kind of didn't want Jack Hawkins. I kind of. I knew right at the start that I wanted to play with the idea of Jack Hawkins. So I loved the idea of Jack actually being a female. So it became Janie Hawkins, you know. Um, and it's more about thinking about the the people that would have been in on, on the seas at the time and how Treasure Island is very much, because of its era, a specifically kind of uh, a book specifically about white British people. And then I start thinking, well, in the seas, on the seas, you would have had people who'd come, you'd have Arabs, you'd have people of Scandinavian origin, you'd have people from South America, you'd have people from the South Asian continent, like India, whatever, and the Far East. So I wanted to work all that in. And then I started thinking about Bristol and Liverpool and Cardiff and London and the docks and how 
a lot of those voices disappeared. So that there's a massive, vast history of mixing and kind of cultural kind of understanding between different communities that was there, that wasn't there. And that, that so it kind of fed into what I do. What I write about unheard voices in my kind of regular career. So I wanted to work all that in. Uh, and Treasure Island ended up bizarrely. I didn't think it was going to work, but it ended up being a brilliant kind of um, vehicle for that. But it was that. It was a vehicle. I didn't really... I wasn't very faithful to the original, even, you know, the map and how she, Janie Hawkins comes across the map. I kind of twisted it a bit. But that's, you know, part of the fun of writing, you know. Yeah, because I remember reading Treasure Island for the first time and sort of Jim Hawkins as my audience identification oh, yeah, character. And um, so I assume that that's what you're sort of doing with Janie. So, so the younger readers have that. Here's somebody who you can relate to and identify. And obviously, have, with you having written a lot of young adult fiction, that's, sort of, that's something that's second nature to you to give that identification figure for the audience. Yeah, absolutely. And also, in my head, even though she's supposed to be older, you know, Clara Oswald's character, in my head, I kind of wrote her as a young adult rather than an adult. So it, I, I think if you get the voices right in fiction, young people will read adult experiences in fiction if you get the voices right um, and if they're authentic enough. So, yeah. But, yeah, Janie definitely had to be there. And then just, you know, um, you know, Strax is a giant child in a butler's, you know, outfit. And you kind of go, you know, I loved, I had so much fun writing the dialogue, you know, all the way through it, but particularly with the Peyton Oster gang, I had so much fun with that. Strax, particularly, yeah, still makes me smile to this day thinking about Strax's character. <laughs> he is a brilliant creation, no doubt about oh, it. Yeah. And of course, into the mix, you also got to add River's song as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I kind of went for the, I went the whole hog in the end. I just thought, you know, we may as well throw her in. And again, I like the idea of her because there's this sense, obviously, that she becomes this kind of almost a, a holographic version of herself. She, does she exist or doesn't she? And I just thought, if I'm going to have Clara Oswald, I may as well work River Song in, because I'd watched, um, it's obviously, I mean, if you've read it, it's inspired by a couple, particular couple of episodes, so The Snowman, and, and I've forgotten the name of it now, that's ridiculous, isn't it? The one that's The name set, of the Doctor with the Whispermen. Yeah. So you kind of go with that, and you think, do I bring her in? And I thought, yeah, she's too good a character not to have. And I like the idea that she nicks the TARDIS when he's not looking, or a version of it, and goes travelling. I just love the idea of that, because then I start thinking, well, where's, where's the Doctor when River Song has stolen the TARDIS? Obviously doing some kind of... So these parallel, you know, universes that kind of mix in with each other, that was really, really appealing. Um, I really like that idea. Um, and again, another really, really strong character. I think River Song is a fantastic character. And in that era of that kind of when Doctor Who reappeared, there were loads of great characters. It was really, really, really good writing, really clever. So, yeah. So how do you look back on it now? It's been a wee while since you finished the book and it's on shelves now. So one you're quite proud of. Yeah, very much so. I, I, can't, I enjoyed writing it. I was a bit nervous about the reaction because I hadn't watched Doctor Who for so long and then I'd caught up. And then you start thinking, well... Am I kind of, you know, like I'm an interloper? You know, I felt a bit like I, you know, a tourist looking in. And then I remembered there's like um, one of the devices that the Doctor uses in my story um, was actually used by the Master when I was a kid, creating these grotesque little dolls, you know, kind of, you know, 
kind of de de desiccated human beings essentially um and he reverse engineers that i remember getting into a conversation with an editor where the editor was like I'm, this is at the uh the editor was like but you know we, we can't have that went, why not i said it existed it's there it's in that whole pantheon of doctor who and i've got to be i, I don't know who keeps the wiki going the kind of doctor who tardis fandom wiki thing but whoever does that whichever group of people are they're astonishing i mean that you know you kind of look at that and every time i got stuck i'm thinking i'm gonna go ask a doctor who fan if i'm gonna go ask thousands yeah. of them put this wiki together so that was fantastic but yeah it was i'm really proud of it i would think it worked really well and i like I, I i didn't want to do a it to be a political story i just wanted it to be a story that's quite honest about the era and i started thinking about the doctor as a being and what would the doctor what why does the doctor love humanity when humanity has done so many awful things to each other and such awful things to each other so the idea that it's set in the caribbean during the pirate era piracy era and you think well you can't not i i personally couldn't leave out the whole idea of enslaved human beings so i i, I kind of came up with this tribe tribe this gang of enslaved humans who escaped who had this rebel leader uh, which is a nod to an actual rebel leader that existed so yeah i'm really pleased with it i had so much fun writing it the lovely cover too the cover's brilliant i honestly when i saw the cover when i first saw the roughs of the cover and they told me what they're going to do with it because covers for writers they're always they're either brilliant or they're not for me there are some that i absolutely love and there are loads that i just couldn't care less about and this is one of those ones that i absolutely love i think they did such an amazing job of it but the whole series if you look at the series all the way through of this particular part of the um doctor who pantheon that you've got all four of the covers those things four are fantastic so yeah brilliant so where can people find out all about your other work as well you tell us give us a wee plug for your website Oh yeah, um, I have a website, ballyride.co.uk. Uh, it hasn't been updated for a while, and when I mean a while, I mean a good, good while. So it needs an update, but that will be happening soon. And then obviously I have a social media presence, so you know, as Ballyride um, across Instagram and X and threads and whatever. But yeah, um, the website's always a good place to start if it's updated, um, which it will be, I promise, at some point. <laughs> we'll hold you to that, Bally. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. Write, yeah, I think my edit. I think all my editors in various publishing houses are gonna murder me if I don't do it soon. So, yeah, <laughs> needs to be done. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on and having a chat with the Power of Three. It's, it's all right. It's my pleasure. Absolute pleasure to be able to have a chat about that, this book. So yeah. And big thanks to Bally for taking the time recently. He's been super busy and I was delighted to get a quick chat with him. Big football fan, loves his Liverpool, and he lives in Leicester. So there we go useless extra facts there that weren't needed. So John, you're a very well-read gentleman, it would be fair to say, and you've read a lot of, you know, you know your classics things. So are there any particular, to use that ghastly term coined by the X Factor, mashups that you'd like to see Doctor Who meeting in classic fiction? Well, as I was saying before, I really can't think of any of the, the classics that hasn't in some shape or form been been done, been explored, either on screen or in, in big finished dramas, because you know, I was just looking at, at my bookshelf there and I'm saying, right, Dracula, yeah, okay, we've had Vampires of Venice, we've had State of Decay, we've done the vampire stories, we've had a couple of shots at 
Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Brain of Morbius, Wanting a Villa Diodati, you know, we've, we've, we've had various kind of riffs on those themes. We've done the, the, the Phantom of the Opera in the case of Androzani, but we've had uh, Sherlock Holmes as well too, and the Talons of Wang Chiang, you know, we've, we've really not left many corners of, of classic literature unexplored. There's a bit of me that would like to see, although it would be quite a quite a difficult one to navigate. You know, maybe if the if they're talking about the series nudging slightly away from pure science fiction towards more fantasy elements, um, I'm a big fan of Tolkien and Middle Earth. You know, we haven't yet done that. We haven't yet explored what Doctor Who and Middle Earth would look like, or a Middle Earth kind of scenario uh, where okay, we've got goblins, little mini orcs in the Christmas special, but uh, what would it look like in the world of elves and dwarves and wizards and, and so on? So I, I don't think we've had much of that, or at least if we have, would have been in another medium, either in, in, in novelizations or big finished productions that would have passed me by. But there's a bit of me that would be interested in that. But beyond that, you know, I can, you know, we've, we've had flirtations with Dickens. You know, we've had the, uh, like, you know, Tale of Two Cities and in the um, I was going to say the massacre. It's not the massacre. It's the the Reign of Terror and the various bits and pieces that we've had. But we've also had riffs on on Robert Louis Stevenson as well. I mean, we had the Smugglers. There's bits of it in that, and in the Curse of the Black Spot too. So, um, yeah, I guess there's always something new to find in these great classics. So even though they've been kind of done once, you can always find new ways to uh, discover new elements of the story. And in this case, it's very conscious in a new context. So it's very inventive in that in that sense too. I was thinking of some of my other childhood favourites. You mentioned uh, more Robert Louis Stevenson in terms of Kidnapped, which I thought that could be quite good fun particularly if you've got the fifth doctor and it's Andrik who gets kidnapped. I'm just saying that's the sort of thing I could imagine that could be really good fun in the hands of, mm-hmm. you know, somebody like Paul Mars who could make it something really entertaining and, you know, do a riff on that. Perhaps Dick Turpin, I was thinking that was, there'd be something, obviously we had a bit of that in um, The Woman Who Lived in mm-hmm. Capaldi's time, but I thought there might be something quite fun, almost like a Troughton type story in that. You can imagine him sort of like, messing up like holding up the gun and sort of is facing the wrong way and things like that and I think there might be something mm-hmm. entertaining in that and potentially and throwing mentioning Troughton again we did meet Lemuel Gulliver in The Mind Robber mm-hmm. I thought yeah because I thought that would be a good one given that the second Doctor obviously met Gulliver in the land of fiction so you could have mm-hmm. Gulliver's travels perhaps with his Doctor Jamie and Zoe properly meeting him or on an alien world and a twist in the story with they are the giants or indeed they could be the little people they could be the equivalent of the Lilliputians so something like that well, a night twist just there wasn't so much a story that, that, that I, I read when I was a child but I've really grown to, to love the great crossovers there uh, you get these antiquarian figures who poke their noses in where they, they shouldn't be sticking them uh, and they awaken um, all sorts of uh, ancient terrors and yeah, I mean, you could argue that's what the Doctor does, but uh, yeah, so there's there's lots of that, and 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 I think I think your great pal and my occasional Twitter correspondent uh, Roy Gill's a, a fan of M R James, so there's there's room for a rich collaboration there, I think. 
Very much so. Roy's just got a new script out called Winter of the Demon, featuring the Eighth Doctor. And uh, yeah, it's uh, available now from bigfinish.com. Plug, plug. Yeah, I'm I'm not on commission. I'm just plugging it because it's my pal script and it's very, very good. But yeah, fantastic. John, thank you. Thank you for sharing your love of the classic books. I know that a um, big part of me has spent an awful lot of time on holiday spent reading all of these, so it's been quite nice to have a wee trip down memory lane and remember some of my old favourites. Indeed, indeed. For me, a great part of what we're talking about classic literature, for me, classic literature was Doctor Who, the the, the, the target novelizations. And uh, one of the highlights for me uh, as a kid was going to the Doctor Who exhibition in Blackpool for the September weekend. And uh, I would always stock up on lots of target books there. It was always a kind of a, a treasure trove of books I hadn't had a chance to come across back home. So it was always great coming back home with these on the bus. So yes, how much we owe to to those stories and the and the new stories that have been written by people who were inspired by those stories as well. Yep. Um, as they all said, you know, we're all stories in the end. Absolutely. Um, so many people that are still telling them for us. Yep. And we'll have some of those new novelization writers coming on in the new year. Wonderful. Can't wait. Absolutely. Well, John, thank you once again for your time. My but pleasure. You do have a question for me. I know it. Oh, I can feel it. It's it's a question that's that's burning in the depths of time, uh, and and there's, there's there's no definitive answer to it because it's always changing. Like you know, the mercurial figure of the Doctor himself. Kenny, tell us what you're going to play us out with in this classically inspired literary. A literature session that we've had. What are you going to play us out with? Well, I thought, given that we've been discussing, you know, some good, proper, intelligent pieces of work, I thought, what you know involves an island and piece of music. I thought, oh, it could be something from Island Records, perhaps. But then I thought, oh. what's the complete opposite of what we've been discussing? Something intelligent and clever. And I thought, Love Island. That's really stupid, and I hate it. I've never seen an episode since the original Naughties run, but I did quite like the theme tune from the original run, which had a song called Wish I by Jem. So I thought, why don't we play it with that? Because it's actually quite a nice track. So it's intelligence versus complete stupidity on Love Island. So there we go, a nice a nice contrast. That's good, that's good. I, I, have, I haven't watched it at all. I, was, I did apply for it. Um, for the first series, but turned down. So I've never watched it since, and out of out of spite. You blooming right, awful. You're too intelligent for it, John. And also, dare I say, too darn good looking. Exactly. Bless you, my love. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, and we'll be back again very, very soon. Bye, bye. Bye, bye. Keep reading. Baby, you're sailing today. Thank you.